Hey everyone, I'm Eamon Elswa, and this is Getting Into InfoSec. My guest this week is Masha Sadova. I like picking hard challenges and very tall mountains to climb, and computer science seemed like like a tall mountain. So The next mountain she's climbing is tackling the human side of information security. They are also busy human beings. Like the majority of the organization we're trying to secure, they're not security experts. If they had been, they'd be on the security team. Masha shares a lot of resources with us uh, from things everywhere from game theory to positive psychology to behavioral science. It was really amazing. It was just fascinating to me how deep of a field this actually is. And I think very few people actually realize how many avenues there are. Hey, so I wrote a book. It's called Breaking In, A Practical Guide to Starting a Career in Information Security. And that's what it is. What's different about my book, it's more conversational. It's kind of like if we sat down for coffee, what I would recommend to do and what to think about as you're trying to transition into information security. Links are in the show notes. And I'm recording an audiobook version. And guess what? I'm choosing a female voice for it too. So that's kind of interesting. If you have any questions or comments and like to get in touch, you can reach me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email. Everything is at gettingintoinfosec.com. All right, on to the show. Hi, Masha. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Eamon. Good to speak with you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. So give us a little about what you do today in information security. Yeah. So I have the privilege of starting my own company called Elevate Security. And I work on the intersection of security education and behavioral science. One of my favorite topics, having been in this industry for 17 years or so, is the human element of security. And while some people believe that it's the weakest link, I firmly believe that it can be the strongest element of defense. And so I've built a company dedicated to helping create people-powered security. Great. So yeah, people do say a lot of times that people are the weakest link in security. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say regarding that? (laughs) I think that people who think that people are the weakest link come from an old school belief. I think we got to this belief as a security industry because we've taken a technology approach to a human problem. And we found that we can't patch a human being. And so when I talk to old school security practitioners, they say, well, humans always suck. They're always going to make mistakes. So we should just try to mitigate them at all costs and invest in technology. And we've been trying that approach for decades and it hasn't really worked. And I think it's because we've taken technology solution to a human problem. And I think that's the totally wrong way of going about it because human beings are dynamic, complex beings who make decisions not rationally, Mm -hmm. but we have things that we're afraid of or that we're excited about that motivate us. Uh, If we think about all those elements, which ultimately tie into the field of behavioral science, as I was mentioning, then I think it will gain better understanding as to how we enable the human element to be part of the security conversation. Yeah, oftentimes they're the front lines, right? Yeah. (laughs) So we do need to address them one way or the other. Yeah, and I've been in organizations where the human element has been the only way that we've detected attacks because really sophisticated attacks have gotten through our very expensive technology stack that just wasn't tuned correctly. And it wasn't until a human being said, you know, something looks weird here. and I want to check it out. Can you walk us through a scenario that you remember? So the story that I was calling was I was working with a red team of a large corporation. And the red team had spent about a month of R&D time developing custom malware that they were sending out in really targeted phishing attacks to specific employees to get remote access to their machines. Mm -hmm. Once a user would click on the phishing link, they would install this machine. And what ended up happening once this malware was installed is it would change the proxy settings on a browser and start routing software or routing network traffic through malicious path. Oh. So yeah, it was very sophisticated malware. So 
the story that I recall specifically was this had managed to, this malware being created for customized for our environment was able to bypass a lot of the technology controls. Actually, all the technology controls were able to get installed. And it wasn't until a user who installed this and started seeing some weird stuff in their proxy setting. Like, there's something really weird and I must be crazy about this. But I'd like to check it out. And that person ultimately emailed the security team with exactly that email. said, I'm probably nuts and kind of paranoid about this, Mm -hmm. but I think there's something wrong. And that was the beginning of a really large investigation that ultimately led to the uncovering of this red team attack that would have gone, I would say, largely unnoticed for many more weeks, months, maybe, because there we found that without the human interaction, we would not have been able to get that alert. Is there some sort of training they had? I guess you being approachable probably helped, right? The security team being approachable, but what enabled them to find this, uh, you know, to kind of notice this and reach out to you? Yeah. Good question. So one of the things that I found in my career is really helpful is to focus on failure as an eventual outcome. Mm. And if you train people to say security is hard, security is tricky, but that's okay. Mm. And if you sometimes you make a mistake, just let us know and we'll figure it out together. We'll take a look at it together. And you create a safety of failure, a safety to say, it's okay that you made a mistake. You'll find that if you haven't you'll be able to get much more open and transparent dialogue with employees. And that type of relationship and that trust building takes a long time. Mm-hmm. It takes repeated interactions where a person sees that the security team has their back and isn't out to get them fired. And if you can build that trust and relationship when you need someone to, who's in a moment of, oh my gosh, I might have made a mistake, or I need to use the security team as a resource because I think they are actually able to help me in a delicate moment, they will believe that the security team has their back. And you can do this in a variety of different ways. One of the studies that I have found and used in my career is a five-to-one ratio uh, published by a professor out of Harvard University, Dr. Gottman, who said that for any relationships to work, you need five positive interactions to every one negative. Mm. And that was the ratio for successful marriages mm-hmm. versus those who got divorced five years after the study happened. Also, high-performing teams have six positive directions to every one negative. Medium performing teams have about three positive to one negative and poor performing teams have for every one positive interactions, they have three negative interactions. So if you take that concept of high-performing teams out to an organizational conversation or a cross-departmental conversation, you find that in order for the security team to have a positive experience, to have a positive, healthy relationship with an employee, you need five positive interactions. And what that could mean is every time you report a phishing attack, say thank you. CC the manager and say, you have an employee who's doing an excellent job at reporting. Oh, nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. As a simple thing, right? Or stand at the door and every time anyone walks in who's wearing a badge, (laughs) just give them a donut for just for no reason at all, other than they're exhibiting the correct policy that you've asked them to, as opposed to only finding opportunities to punish people. Yeah. And so for all the behaviors that any organization is trying to drive, finding ways of rewarding people when they do the correct thing instead of just punching them for doing the wrong thing. So the security team sometimes is often seen as ivory tower where you know a bunch of people sit in a room making decisions without others involved in this ivory tower that's unreachable in a faraway place. And so, you know, what you're talking about is just the opposite is first of all I love Dr. Gottman. Three really great studies. But just the basics like you mentioned, please and thank you, right? Uh, how far they can go. 
Yeah. One of the things that I find, uh, so back to the earlier point I was saying around the fact that we're solving a human problem with technical controls, we're missing the fact that human beings not only make mistakes, but also require reward and recognition and reinforcement. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, are also busy human beings. Like the majority of the organization we're trying to secure they're not security experts. Mm -hmm. If they had been, they'd be on the security team, (laughs) (laughs) right? But instead they're in marketing and they're in sales and they're developers and they don't ask the security team to do their job. Like they don't ask you to market, right? In addition to your job. And it's unfair for the security team to ask for employees to be security experts. Not only is it unfair, it's also unrealistic. And so the only thing we're going to find is failure, (laughs) which is why the calling human beings the weakest link for me is one of just the most ironic jokes is that, you know, we call an end user, I mean, call them a user, a weakest link, Mm -hmm. the problem between the keyboard and the chairs, the human, right? We keep saying stuff like that. And we put it on the user instead of on us and our inability to communicate effectively and to empower an organization to make better decisions. And that can look like creating better tools, making them more usable, making it more streamlined, having general employees raise their hand and say, I don't know this, Mm -hmm. but I know who to ask because I'm not a security expert and asking them to be security experts by giving them a boatload of security training is going to be unrealistic. I mean, we'll only end in failure and disappointment, which is where our industry has gotten to today on this issue. Yeah. Being approachable, having good bedside manners. Yeah, I know. (laughs) <laughs> you know, would you recommend folks to read the classic book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Would that apply in this field? I think very much so. Yeah. And as you were saying, bedside manners, as the medical industry is teaching doctors how to have bedside manners uh, to avoid getting sued, yeah. maybe we have our own equivalent in the security space, right? Security bedside manners. Exactly. Right. And how to work with non-technical or non-security folks in your organization and win friends and influence people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just great work. So let's step back a second and find out how did you get into information security to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. So maybe I'll take it back before I got into information security. Sure. So I studied computer science in school. When I went to school, information security wasn't really even a topic. But I had decided that I wanted to be in some form of engineering or IT support or some kind of technical role ever since I was a little girl. And I knew that I wanted to get into the space because my grandmother was a computer programmer. Oh. I know. So I'm originally from Russia. I was born in the Soviet Union. Okay. And we moved to the States in 1990. And my grandmother was the first graduating class of computer programmers in 1954 under Stalin in the Soviet Union. Wow, amazing. It's totally amazing, yeah. And I asked her, I was like, Grandma, what programming language did you learn? She's like, when I went to school, we didn't even have programming languages, right? There's cards, mainframes right? Cards and punch cards, right? Yeah. yeah. And then she's like, then we learned PL and then Fortran and then C. Wow. And she taught my dad how to program in C. And my dad taught me how to program when I was a little girl. How old were you when you learned? I must have been like in sixth grade or so, sixth or seventh grade. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, not that early, but earlier than some. What was your first computer? You know, actually, we were pretty poor. So I would go into a computer lab in the local university and local community college okay. and play around on their Macintoshes there. Awesome. We still had access for, even though we were poor immigrants, we still had access to a computer. But it was interesting because, you know, there's a lot of conversations right now about women and STEM. And if I look back as to why I got into this, I know I had role models in my own family, in my own life, and it never occurred to me that I shouldn't get into this field. And maybe part of it is the immigrant story. I like picking hard challenges and very tall mountains to climb. And then computer science seemed like like a tall mountain. So nice. I did that. And I went to school initially two years. I had two years of a liberal arts degree, which became relevant in my behavioral science work later on. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was what I was doing at the time. And then switched over to a super cool program that I believe is still in existence called CyberCore. It has an alternate name of scholarship for service. And it's a program put on by the U.S. government that pays for your last two years of undergrad or two years of master's degree, room, stipend, board, the whole lot in exchange for a focus in computer security. And I took a quick look at the numbers and decided that I didn't mind earning money while going to school and computer security seemed like a great field to get into. I became really fascinated with some of the problem sets in this space. And working for this as part of this particular program, it was designed in such a way to start getting college students to start focusing on security problems that the government was understaffed. And so I got to work on things like credit card skimmers that the IRS was trying to tackle. And I got to spend a whole bunch of time doing cyber forensics. And I worked on a murder case with like hidden data on hard drives. Oh, wow. It was awesome. Awesome. It's very NCIS. Uh-huh. When I say this sounds way cooler, really, it was just a lot of hours with me and a stack of hard drives and imaging software and just transferring files. And that got lonely after some time. Mm. Yeah. And I was like, okay, well, that's not going to work out for me long term. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So I did that for a little bit and it was great. And, you know, I get to rebuild computers. I got to know about, you know, data structures and file system structures. And that, that's been helpful in parts of my career. Mm-hmm. But I found that going to that program specifically put me on a really cool track because I got to experience specifically from an education standpoint, a lot of different flavors of security, which was so eye opening, right? You could, I got to do some pen testing, some social engineering, forensics, you know, operating system security, network security, the whole lot of it. And it was just fascinating to me how deep of a field this actually is. Mm. And I think very few people actually realize how many avenues there are in this space. Yeah. So you did that program. Mm -hmm. And then are there any hooks involved? Do you have to work in the field or anything like that? And then how did you transition after that? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah. So there is, in exchange for your two years of school, you work for the government for two years afterwards. And so I started work for a defense contractor. I got a chance to work for customs. And then I was cyber analyst for Northrop Grumman. And as I was mentioning earlier, I'm originally I'm originally from Russia, so I speak Russian fluently and as a background in security. I got to work on some really cool Russian cyber threat accounts, mm. which was fascinating and really got to see some of this work in action and particularly how, what kind of nation state adversary capabilities are. And along the way, I became really interested in the human element 
because obviously you have these technical attacks, right? And they exploit system vulnerabilities and systems, but there's often a human element. Someone gets tricked into clicking on a link or giving up really critical credentials, whether or not it's trickery or it's espionage or it's bribery or blackmail, but there's a human being involved. And so I became really fascinated with that question. So what are we doing to lock down the human element of this? And as I was mentioning earlier, quite disappointed in the answers I was getting. Mm. So I, I did that for a couple of years and I explored that aspect of it. But this human element still sort of this nagging question in the back of my mind. I kind of got tired of working for the government and the culture there. And I decided that I wanted to move west and find a job in the tech sector. And so I started with Salesforce in 2012, where I transitioned my career into initially an insider threat program there. And gradually that just expanded to, I mean, insider threat as a function is essentially finding a needle in a haystack, unless you have really great detailed data sets and tuning around anomalies. It's a very tricky path to go down. So I began asking this question, like, well, if I don't have the right tooling or the setup to find a needle in the haystack, can I get it such a way that the haystack rejects the needle. And I became obsessed with this question. Like I would go to bed sleeping, uh, thinking about this. And I was like, what would it take for people to want to do security? But even before I got to that question, I was like, what would it take for people to want to keep their team secure? And so if there's any anomalies in, in this case, in sort of another peer's behavior, but even extending that out to like a technical system, what would it take for that person to raise their hand and say, something is weird and I think you should look into it? So back to the war story that I was saying earlier, Mm -hmm. what would it take? And I looked around and no one had any answers. They're like, well, you could give them more training. Yeah. I was like, well, that's not going to work out, right? And I was like, well, the answer is not in security field. We haven't figured it out. Mm-hmm. And I began this treasure hunt of finding fields that could answer this for me. And I came across three different disciplines that, as it turns out, are all interrelated. The first I came across was game design. Mm-hmm. And I read a really great book called Reality is Broken by Jane McGonigal around how gaming makes us better humans. Cool. Yeah. So I looked at that book around like, well, how do you design a good game? And that's important because people want to play games. They don't have to. They want to. Yeah. Game theory is an ever-increasing field. I mean, yeah. you see a lot of TED Talks about it. Just game theory in general is just a very fascinating topic. Really fascinating. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, so there's something about gaming that I started extracting. Okay. And then that got tied into positive psychology, which is a really good book. This is called Flow by an amazing researcher called Mikhail Csikszentmihalyi. Okay. And he believes that if you give people the correct amount of challenge that meets their skill level, that is a state of happiness. And if you use that definition, you can actually create happiness for people. And so as an example, let's say if we're given a challenge, a game that is too hard for us, we find it frustrating and we quit. Mm-hmm. If we play a game that is too easy, we get bored and we quit. Yeah. But if we get to a level that is just at the right level, we find it fascinating and we keep playing it again and again and again until we master it. If we go back to it, we'll be bored, right? But then we now have the skills to level up and get higher and higher and higher. And that is ultimately the why mastery, the journey of mastery 
is tied to what he calls the optimal human experience, happiness. And that can exist in sports, that can exist in when you're performing musical instruments, but there are lots of experiences where we can get into the state of flow. And so that's lightly related to security. What I started thinking about was like, so it's not that we're afraid of hard work. It's just that the information or the challenge needs to be presented at such a way that meets somebody's ability level. Right. And that requires understanding of their ability level. So we can't do a one-size-fits-all approach. There's a certain amount of customization that needs to happen for someone to want to engage into this conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the second field. And the third field ultimately tied all of these elements in, and that was behavioral science. And this was heavily relying on the work of BJ Fogg, who is a professor out of Stanford. And he talks about the fact, how do we create new habits? And that's the perfect combination between motivation and ability. We will do something if we are either motivated enough to do it or something is easy enough to do. And you can play on either of those two verticals. And so Pulling all of these things in together, I started creating a whole framework in this space. I created a group-based board game that leveraged social accountability and peer dialogue to get people to understand why it was important. So really spiking up motivation. I didn't change people's ability. I assumed either they had training or they could figure it out on their own because they're intelligent. But if I could get people to care, mm -hmm. they would step up to security. Did you have to use social pressure as well? Like some sort of leaderboards or anything like that as well? I did because that sort of got into the game design aspect of it. I did mm -hmm. play with leaderboards. I found that leaderboards are effective for a small subset of people. Mm -hmm. Sales and executives are really big into leaderboards. But I have also found that leaderboards are really effective for like the top 10% of performers. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get the same 10% on your leaderboard again and again and again with very little churn. And you're only engaging a really small population who are likely already going to get the content anyway. I see. You're not engaging with the masses. And so I've since then moved away from leaderboards as a core technique for engaging a large population. But I think in small subsets or maybe small campaigns, it is actually an effective use. I might be digressing, but they did a study where like, oh, your neighbor is saving money on their electricity by doing whatever. Yeah. And then people are then encouraged as opposed to just sending them a, a thing. Did you know you could save a few hundred dollars by doing this? Yeah. I've actually seen it as social acceptance where people might not care about security or saving power, but they do care about how they're performing compared to their neighbors. And so what you were saying is the O-Power report saves something like $8 billion in energy use mm -hmm. because they just compared your usage to somebody else's. And it's been shown to be really, really effective. And it's a behavioral science concept called social proof. Okay, We've been doing that for security data sets and showing how you are doing on reporting rates and phishing click-through rates compared to your team, to your department, and to your organization. And people have been finding that to be incredibly, incredibly powerful in getting people to shift their behaviors. Because you might not care about reporting, but you might care about the fact that you report three times less than everyone else on your team, for example. That's awesome. So, yeah. And can you clarify what you mentioned about behavioral? Is that also behavioral psychology or is that a different field? So it's behavioral economics, behavioral science, behavioral psychology. I think this is all Venn diagrams. Like there's mass overlap in them. Mm. I think behavioral psychology is probably subset behavioral science. I'm not entirely sure. I suspect a professor of one or the other would correct you, but 
I don't know the terminology enough to, uh, <laughs> to declare. We could save it for them. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. No, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. And now a message from our sponsor. This is a public service announcement. The government has spawned the new Prehack Majority Report Division. We will save countless lives by predetermining who is about to get hacked in the future and wiping their devices ahead of time, saving you from an imminent hack. Our precogs are 100% accurate in determining prehacks, working towards a hackless future. Now you've taken all this information and how did you apply it in the workplace? And can you walk us through some successes and also maybe some failures, or at least can you walk us through some successes and how you're able to transform the workplace using these methodologies? Absolutely. Yes. So at its core, the security education industry has a belief that, you know, the problem is that people don't know. And if I give you more information, you'll do something different. And all of a sudden, you'll change your behavior. When in fact, the reason people don't do things is not because they don't know. But there are a lot of other things that can influence a behavior. So one of the things that I did was changing tailgating behavior while I was at Salesforce. People weren't wearing their badges and walking through spaces visibly, walking to secure spaces without authentication. And so I initially thought, well, maybe it's an education problem. And I sent out the policy and put posters up and it didn't. Not a surprise. Of course, it didn't work, right? Right. No one's like, oh, I didn't know. There's a poster. I'll do it now, right? And it's funny. Yeah, we all laugh. And yet that's what we do, right? Oh, my God. I hate notes. When my roommates used to put notes all over the place, I'm like, do not put a note. Like, really? Just come to me, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're totally right, though. Post-it notes are passive aggressive. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, just have a conversation. But that's what I started doing. Right. And I started talking to people. I was like, hey, why don't you wear your badge? Right? I'm just curious. And I found a couple of things. One, people just had a badge pull that was broken and they didn't know where to get a new one. Oh, That's it, right? And that's not necessarily behavioral science other than I asked some questions. And that's back actually to the BJ Fogg model of motivation and ability. They actually just didn't have the ability to wear their badge. They wanted to, they just didn't have the ability. So I'd fix that. Right. The second thing is people were not able to have a hard conversation with other people behind them and said, I need you to badge in. It wasn't a social norm. Mm. And so what I had to do was model for people. I'd created a video and shared that out. I modeled for people how that conversation could look. So they had a certain comfort of understanding what that looks like. And then the last component was the motivation. People were not motivated to have that conversation. They didn't actually think it was a problem. And so what I did was I just highlighted some actual tailgating incidents of people who had come in off the street. I shared this video that I had secured from the security department. And I didn't do it as a scolding thing. I basically put it out and said, we've had this incident. This one particular person's come off the street, you know, X amount of times. Could you please let us know if you see him? Mm. And I shared this video with people. And all of a sudden, Everyone was united against like a greater cause and everyone understood what they needed to do, which was badge and only let people who had badges in. They were empowered. And they were empowered to do it. And so by giving people the ability, the tools and the framework, and then understanding why they needed to do it, we shifted the behavior. And I'm told it's been about three or four years since I've been at the company and this department where I did it or this building where I did it. And I'm told that that's still the culture is to always check the badges of people behind you, which warms my heart. That's awesome. (laughs) Great work. Yeah. That's really cool. Thanks. Similar with phishing reporting, you know, people always thought they were just going to get punished if they clicked on links. And once we communicated that the correct behavior was reporting and not 
it wasn't just falling for a link, but actually reporting. And then we send out thank you emails to their managers. We highlighted top reporters, fastest reporters. We sent the most, you know, aware people, hoodies. Reinforcement. Exactly. So reinforcement of the positive. Yeah, exactly. Positive reinforcement, I guess, right? You got it. Yeah. We were able to increase our reporting rates 350% in six month period. And so that was really valuable. That's really cool. Yeah. Nice work. Mm -hmm. So the way I initially found you, Masha, I was, I was just browsing interwebs and found your video where you were mentoring someone that was going through the program. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about some of the mentoring you've done for others, what you've seen out there, and maybe advice for folks that are looking to get into the field? Yeah. I think mentorship is probably one of the most pivotal ways of getting people into this field and getting them to stay in this field. As I was mentioning earlier, I got into it because I had a model from my grandmother and it never occurred to me that I couldn't do it. I have personally found that, so I do some casual mentoring, which is advice here and there, but also there's certain people who are really interested in a career path and doing the work that I'm doing. And we sit down on a regular basis and talk through, you know, career choices. When, if they get stuck in an organization, like, you know, when do you ask for a promotion? How do you push back on your boss? How do you put together, like, how do you level up your skill sets? Like, do you do a public speaking course or do you do a pen testing or Python course? Like, what would be more beneficial? Mm. And when you're given those choices, you may not know sort of the what the implications are going forward. Right. And if you have someone who's a couple of years ahead of you who can provide sort of what it looks like around the bend, that's really helpful. I've gotten to where I am in my career because of amazing mentors and sponsors. And I think it's really important to be able to pass that on for future people as well. But I also want to mentor people who want to do the work. So when I sit down with a mentee, I give them some homework. I ask them, what do you want to get out of this relationship? What are your goals? What do you think I can help you with? And then I actually also ask them to do a strength finder assessment so that they can come to me with an understanding of what they can bring to the table. Right. And I also, first couple of things I do with them in the first couple of months is really understanding what they're great at. Especially in the security field, there's so many great rock stars who are excellent at, you know, maybe it's pen testing, right? Maybe it's reverse engineering. Maybe it's product assessment. It doesn't matter what, it, but it's hard to see from where you are when you start yeah. how you can get to be an expert. And I actually think one of the best things about security is you can actually forge your own path. We're such a new field and the industry is changing so much and the problem sets we're facing are so new. The best thing you can do is take a look at what you are excellent at what you bring to the table and what problem sets interest you and see how you can merge those. And I just remember that because I did that exercise for myself. And I remember me like the human element drives me nuts. I think there's huge untapped potential and there's not a solution. And I way back in my past, as I mentioned earlier, I had a liberal arts degree that I thought was a waste of time for most of like my, you know, cyber analyst days. And it wasn't until I got to this problem set and I was like, I can see this problem set and connect the dots in a way that no one else around me can. And at first I thought that that must be something wrong with me right? Like I should be better at like log analysis or I should be more technical. And it took a lot of courage in my own path to say, I'm going to start a new approach to this. And I don't care if it's never been done before because I want to try this out. And I think I have what it takes to create a new path here. And having a mentor who can say, yeah, 
you know, go do it. Let me help you. I got your back. Let me connect you with people. There's a person I think you should meet. There's a conference you should go to. It just expands what you can do. So get a mentor, be a mentor. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Any tips on how to find a mentor for those looking to get into the field? I mean, from your experience, what have you seen out there? What are some common mistakes that you're seeing those coming into the field doing Yeah, that can probably be corrected? Yeah. So I wouldn't go up to someone and be like, would you be my mentor? I don't think either party knows what that means. I think it's really helpful if you can come in with a very specific ask and said, I'm really interested in X, whatever X is getting into behavioral science and security. I'm really interested in your application of finding backdoors in this application. I'm really into hardware security. And I know that you are like a leader in this space. Would you be willing to help me architect my career or work with me on the next several steps to get me into a job in a successful company or working on a really cool research project or work with me to present at a next conference. But having some tangible goal that someone can work with you on specifically is really helpful. And so don't come to a mentor expecting them to tell you what you need to do. You need to show some initiative and say, this is my goal. And I think you're the person who can help me get there. And I think that's one really valuable way. And then don't be afraid of cold outreach. Mm. Find people who speak at conferences, publish papers. I mean, some of the reasons I love doing that and podcasts like this is because I find that it makes my background and my story available to a lot more people that I would have never had a chance to meet. And I do this essentially as a one-to-many communication. Yeah. And occasionally from this blast out, There's a couple of things that come back and say, I heard this that you said. And that reach out, I always try to respond and initiate some kind of dialogue because how else would we have ever crossed paths unless you reach back out to me? And so I highly encourage finding people who do speak a lot in this space because they're probably a great place to start because even if they're maybe at capacity from a mentorship perspective, they might know other people that you can get in touch with. Yeah, at the end of the day, it's all about the human connection. Mm-hmm. We oftentimes overlook that in every step and we just don't realize that there's all these humans out there. Let's be human for once. So Yeah, it's a lot more satisfying to be humans than just to be digital robots. Yeah, I like being human. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us more about Elevate Security. How does it work? You know, you've taken all this information, all this science. How does it work with Elevate Security? Walk us through. And is there anything that folks can use that are trying to learn about security from your product? Yeah. So at its core, what we're trying to do is rethink the way that enterprises, companies approach their human element. And so, as I was mentioning earlier, as a foundation of behavioral science, we are building three different product lines that really look at the full human experience. So the first product that we created is a group-based game called Hacker's Mind. And you sit down in a room or a virtual room and you play through this game with your peers or your coworkers and you experience what it looks like to look at yourself from the perspective of a hacker, and you ultimately design an attack against yourselves, exploiting the human vulnerabilities, the social manipulation techniques that you've uncovered in yourself, and trying to get access to the key asset that you have, ultimately designed to get you to care about why security even matters. That game as a whole is not teaching you about 2FA or password management techniques. It just teaches you why you have access 
to information that hackers out there are motivated and interested in getting at and the methodologies that they would use to approach. Mm. And I found that this specifically, I built this virtual game off of a board game that I had prototyped at Salesforce and rolled out to 25,000 people. So I guess not really prototyped. And I found that just the act of getting people to understand why shifted a culture so significantly that any other security programs you did on top of that, people started pulling that information in instead of having it shoved at them. So that was why this is the very first product that we built at Elevate because in my career, it's what I've seen to be single-handedly most impactful. Okay, And it's also fun because you get to play with your peers. Again, the human connection, right? Yeah, It's not just you and a machine, it's dialogue, which secondarily actually really helps with retention. If you have discussion, you're likely to remember something 70% more than if you just read it, which is 15% retention. Awesome. And the second product is like, okay, so cool. You care. Now what? Wouldn't it be great to know what specifically you need to do to be a better security-minded employee? And if, let's say, Susie at a company is excellent at security. She never clicks on a phishing link. She has a password manager. She reports all the time. Why does she need to go through the same security training that John on the other side has to go through, even though he's terrible, right? He posts like, you know, secrets to GitHub all the time, has leaky S3 buckets. It's not necessarily fair and it's also not relevant. So what we're doing is ingesting the security behavior data that exists for a lot of enterprises, often in Splunk or through phishing assessment tools and reporting, doing analytics on that and providing for every employee in the company, like the equivalent of, as you were mentioning, the O-Power report basically says, based on how you performed the last quarter, these are your strengths and these are your weaknesses. And for your strengths, we give out badges. And for your weaknesses, we provide very specific training to course correct on that behavior. So if you don't have a password manager, we take you to a password management installation guide. And if you don't know how to report, we take you to reporting guidelines. Mm -hmm. And if you've reported every phishing attack, there's a badge. So you're great. Mm. And we show you how you're doing compared to your peers. Because Again, you might not care about security, but you might care about social acceptance and belonging. And we use things like pointing out who's the most senior person in your organization who uses a password manager, for example, right? Okay. And then all that data is also pulled back for the security team so they can see, you know, I'm trying to influence malware download rates. Is it actually getting better or worse? So you can actually start using data-driven approach to your security awareness programs to see if you're actually making an impact or are you finding that the posters you keep putting up in the sticky notes are keeping you flatlined, right? Yeah. I anecdotally have seen this, but I'm on a mission to show the industry the data that shows, you know, ongoing videos and newsletters don't do anything to shift behaviors or do, you know, maybe 3%. And then then you got to try something else, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to really start seeing what kind of campaigns truly start shifting a behavior, it might be an email from the CEO, right? It might be a video of your latest tailgater, or it could be sticky notes, and I'm totally wrong, but <laughs> but really start using a data-centric approach to understand who are your high-risk groups, who needs focus on, and then give people very customized and tailored recommendations for where they are. Okay. Yeah. And the third, I think you mentioned a third. Yeah, it's in super beta, scheduled for next summer, but it's essentially our working title for it is Grammarly for Security, oh. the red squiggly line that 
will in line tell you whether or not this is the moment you need to be paying attention or not. Okay. This summer or next summer, 2019? Summer 2019. So, <laughs> so stay, stay tuned for that. Awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to that. That's mm-hmm. cool. Can you tell us about some fails you've encountered? So we've talked about like what we should do for information security, but what are the things that are not working that you've seen out there? Yeah, totally. I have two favorite fails. Okay. So shaming. Mm-hmm. I think shaming works short term. And long term, people just don't trust you. And I used shaming for locking people's computer screens. Mm. And that works. It works, right? And then you're the enemy of the state. Oh. <laughs> Going forward, right? And, and everyone bad mouths you. But that's, you know, I've seen it work in, work in some organizations, but not in others. Okay. Second, I have run phishing campaigns that have impersonated well-known logos and brands, FedEx and Dropbox and Facebook. <laughs> and my my target audience decided to report those phishing attacks to FedEx and Dropbox and Facebook uh. instead of us. And the CISO of those companies ended up calling my management and told us to cut it out, which we did, which we did. Right. What a way to meet. <laughs> I know. I know. I would have probably just had an informal heads up next time if I felt like a campaign like that was really important to run. Uh-huh. It really is too bad because if you neuter a campaign enough to make it, you know, a package is here, but without the branding, you know, attackers do it all the time. It's too bad that as training, we can't do that. But mm. yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> and the last lesson I learned that I was really surprised on is money isn't a motivator as much as I thought it would be. And I have since done a lot of reading in this space, but I found that, so the specific example was I was running a bug hunt, like a bug bash for a set of products. And we basically said, if you show up and you find the most number of bugs, top winner will win this $1,000 piece of technology. I think it was sort of iPad at the time. Mm. And I found that very few people showed up despite it being marketed and communicated and set on people's calendars. And I was really confused because I would have thought that $1,000 would have been plenty of money to get someone in the door. And what I've since found is what happens is that people do this correlation and say, I'm really busy and I don't really need that whatever, $50, $100, even $1,000. Like it's not really worth, I can live without, it's not a big deal. And they do a calculation in their mind as to, is my time or my energy worth that $1,000, yes or no? Mm. And they'll often opt out because they have a lot of stuff going on. And so that's an extrinsic reward. Now, if you tie something in that's that's an intrinsic reward, something like competition, like win amongst your teammates or altruism, like defend this company in a way that no one can, but something that doesn't have a clear monetary value but it does have a personal value to somebody. You can also get tied to things like access, something that they can't buy. An example to this is you have exclusive access to a lock picking class, for example, Mm. something that they can't just go on Amazon and purchase or win lunch with an executive of your choice Mm. or get a preferred parking spot for the month. Yeah. But stuff that they can't necessarily just straight up buy an Amazon gift card, right? <laughs> the equivalent will go much further in tapping into people's motivation. Because if you or anyone want to read more about this, it's a concept called market norms versus social norms. And the book Predictably Rational goes into this. I love that book. It's so great. It's so great. But it goes into, there's a specific example of a moving company or like why if you ask a friend to move, they will feel better if they did it for free and just strengthens friendship than if you sort of 
gave them like the friend rate of, you know, a $50 versus the 300 moving truck. And they're like, right. they were more likely have done it for an altruism thing than have the whole thing be cheapened by a $50, whatever, coffee or dinner date or something. And um, mm-hmm. be like, oh, you just use me as cheap movers, right? Whereas if you had never paid them at all, they would have probably been, be- been better off. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fascinating quirk of being human. Yeah. So much to say on that. <laughs> you know, just being internally motivated versus externally motivated. You see that with kids trying to, you know, see which kids are internally motivated or externally. And then, yeah, I mean, you've touched on so much. Behavioral Rush, I love that book. It was one of the first books I read in behavioral economics. Yeah. And it's just, it's been an interesting thing. So yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you, Masha, for sharing that. I think it's very important for us to not only know the best way to do things, but also how others have made mistakes. Oftentimes, when we see people out there We don't see all the mistakes they've made. And I think we can learn from their mistakes and failures. So thank you for sharing that. That was really helpful. My pleasure. And thanks for all the great questions. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I think we could put a part two of this at some point. uh, There's so many things I just didn't get to touch on. So, but thank you for coming on the show. And how can people reach you if they want to? Yeah. So the best email to reach me is Masha at elevatesecurity.com. I'm also on Twitter at Mod Masha, M-O-D-M-A-S-H-A. I'm also pretty active on LinkedIn. So please feel free to find me there and drop in your note that you heard me on this podcast. And I'll make sure to accept your request. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on the show today and we'll talk to you soon. Simon, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. Links will be in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments and like to get in touch, you can reach me on Twitter, LinkedIn, or email. Everything is at gettingintoinfosec.com. If you like the show, please share with your friends and let others know. They might thank you for it. Every week, I let my guests pick their outro music, and this week it's entire by Quintess Moreira. <laughs>